You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Amen. All right. Thanks for that prayer, Doug. Uh, Beautiful, powerful stuff, man. Well, guys, uh, how's it going? I hope you're doing well. Uh, as Chris mentioned earlier, my name is Nathan Riley, and I am coming at you this morning from Bend, Oregon. And I just want to say I am excited, and more than that, really, I'm honored to get to open God's Word with you today. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and get those out. We've got a lot of work to do this morning. And so you can turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 16. Um, this morning, we're going to look at what is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And, and this is one of my favorite passages, not just because it's brilliant. Uh, I think Jesus is doing and saying some really incredible, really insightful, really culturally astute things here in this passage. Uh, but it's not only my favorite passage because it's brilliant. It's also one of my favorite passages because it has served as sort of a, a bedrock or a foundational passage uh, for my own life in ministry. This, for me, has been the passage that I keep coming back to, both in moments of uh, discouragement and in moments of defeat, but also uh, in moments of celebration and joy. And so this morning, I want to do essentially two things. And first of all, I want to shed some light on the beauty and the brilliance of what Jesus is doing and saying in this passage. But then secondly, I do want to share some of my own personal story with you. And I want to talk in particular about how this passage has, has been formational um, in my own heart. And so um, typically I would ask if that sounds all right to you, like if you guys are, you know, okay with this. Um, but the truth is every single one of you is muted right now and only Jamie Duncan has the power to unmute you. So instead of asking for your permission, I'm just going to thank you guys for listening to me. And uh, let me pray for us one more time uh, before we dive into the word together. Heavenly Father, the privilege of coming together this morning under your word, under the authority of your truth is not lost on us. And so I pray this morning, God, that you would speak boldly, that you would speak loudly, and that you would help us to hear. And I pray that you would send, Lord, your Holy Spirit, the same, the same Spirit that inspired these very events that we're going to talk about and inspired the recording and the writing of these events thousands of years ago. God, that by that same Holy Spirit, you would inspire our reading and our understanding of your text this morning in a way that doesn't just fill our heads with interesting ideas, but does the deeper work of sinking into our hearts and souls and transforming us by your gospel. God, we need that. And so we pray, God, use this time, these next minutes, as we look together at your story. Uh, God, use it all for your glory and use it for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start uh, in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, okay, Caesarea Philippi. Now, I, I want to pause right here for just a moment because I want to try to help to set the stage or the context for the conversation that Jesus is about to have with his disciples. 
If you're familiar with the story, then you know that at this point, Jesus has already been doing ministry with his disciples for some time, right? Likely a couple of years. And the vast majority of the time they've spent together in ministry took place in and around, and I would add even sometimes on, the Sea of Galilee, okay? The region of the Galilee. However, on this particular day, Jesus decides to take the disciples for a little walk. Okay, and they end up walking some 25 miles north into a region that was known as Caesarea Philippi. Now, the reason that I bring this up is that I think that often when we read the Bible, details like the place, details like the setting, they don't get a whole lot of attention. I think the reason for that is because often we are so much more focused on the content of Jesus's words, right, or the content of Jesus's actions, we're more focused on that than we are focused on where he is when he says this stuff or does this stuff. Do you know what I mean? I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the conversation that's going to unfold in today's passage is richer. It is richer. It is, it is further empowered by the particulars of this geography, okay? So in other words, it's not only what Jesus says here that is important. It's the place in which he says it. Now let me unpack that for you. You see, to Matthew's first readers, discovering that Jesus and his disciples were hanging out in Caesarea Philippi would have been shocking. They would have been shocked, even appalled by this news. Because if there's anything that good Jewish boys and girls learned when they were growing up, it's that they had no business hanging around this region. Now, why is that? You see, it's because this region, Caesarea Philippi, it had about the darkest, um, seediest history of pagan, cultic, evil that you could possibly imagine. You see, for centuries and centuries, this particular place had been a center of worship to the Canaanite god Baal, or Baal, as we often call him, okay? Baal was one of the gods sort of typified in the Old Testament as like the arch enemy of Yahweh, okay? And so you can think of this place as something of a headquarters for the worship and sacrifice for God's enemies, now, that, that was happening for centuries. In more recent history, closer to Jesus' time, the population here had become increasingly influenced by Greek thought and theology. Okay? And so this region had actually shifted a couple centuries prior from worshiping Baal, Baal, to the worship of the Greek god Pan. Okay? His name was Pan. And, and under Pan's worship, things got even worse. Now, Pan was known as the god of the forest, uh, the god of the livestock, okay? And, and he was portrayed as being half goat and half man, okay? So I even have a picture for you here. If you want to think of Pan, think of Mr. Tumnus, right? From The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if any of you have read it, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, uh, that's kind of what he looked like. But, but whereas in Narnia, Mr. Tumnus was sort of this sweet, uh, docile, gentle, sort of cute flute prank, uh, flute-playing creature, Pan, Pan was not so nice. Uh, in fact, Pan, <laughs> let's say it this way, Pan was a kind of a pervert. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Uh, you see this 
in the center of this region, Caesarea Philippi, there exists this really beautiful cliff face. And, and once again, I've got a picture for you. And at one end, sort of on that left side, center of your screen, there's this large grotto, okay, or, or this cave. And, and flowing from that cave is this natural spring. This natural spring of water wells up from that cave and then flows out. And it actually serves as the headwaters or the source waters for the Jordan River, okay? Now, if you're to go there today, you would recognize that this is a beautiful site to behold. I actually had the privilege. This is a picture that I took just over a year ago. Uh, I got to go to the Holy Lands. It was amazing. Um, and, and so I'm sharing with you some pictures that I took. While this is a beautiful site, to look at today, I assure you that the events that transpired here back then were anything but beautiful. You see, in honor of this Greek god Pan, and in hopes that that Pan would do what he does, which is bring forth the water from this spring to fertilize the people's crops, the people performed all sorts of vile evil, disgusting practices here. I'm just going to mention two of them, okay? The first one is this. This is crazy, but um, the people of this region had an annual festival in which the men of the region would climb up on top of the cliff face, up on, on top as you can see there, and once there, they would perform erotic acts with goats, that's what they did once a year. And they believed that if they did this, it would actually arouse Pan's passions, and he would thus spill forth his seed upon their lands, which would result in a fruitful harvest. Super gross, but that's what they did every year, okay? Let me share with you a second practice. They would perform child sacrifices here. Here's another picture of that cave. What they would do each year is they would take newborn babies and they would throw them into the waters of this cave. Very quickly, the babies would drown as their bodies were, were pulled under the water and then dashed against the sharp and jagged walls of the subterranean rivers and tunnels. And then what they would do is they would send people about 50 or 100 yards downstream, down the river, and they would wait and they would watch. And if they found blood spilling forth in the water, it meant that Pan had not accepted the sacrifice. And so they would throw in another baby. They would often wind up doing this dozens of times until finally a baby would disappear entirely without a trace of blood. And that was for them evidence that Pan had accepted the child and was satisfied with the sacrifice. Guys, brutal violence, right? This is a senseless loss of life. And it was these evil practices, all in honor of Pan, that earned this region the name Peneus. It was known as Peneus for years, uh, which it was called until just recently, just prior to Jesus's time, the Romans renamed it after Caesar and the Tetrarch Philip, Caesarea Philippi. Now that was the reputation and the history of this area. And that is why the Jews stayed away. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. 
Instead, Jesus thinks that this would be a pretty nice place for a little retreat with his disciples. And Jesus finds that this would be a strategic location for a pivotal conversation. So as we read Jesus's words together, I'd like for you to just picture for a moment, just picture Jesus and his disciples maybe sitting under a tree, right? Looking up at this cliff face, at that cave. That's what's in the background as he has the following conversation. Again, verse 13 through 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, now listen carefully, right? This is the part that I love. And I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Did you know that this is the very first mention in the entire Bible of the church? This is the first time that language is used. It's the first time church shows up in the text. And so what is Jesus saying here? What's he getting at? Effectively, he's saying this, guys, here it begins. In this moment, upon upon this profession of faith, Peter, with with your answer, with this declaration and acknowledgement of my identity, here it begins. Here begins the church. I don't know about you, um, but I think that if I were Peter in that moment, Uh, I would be feeling pretty good about myself, right? Like, wow, look what I just did, right? I got the right answer. Jesus is making a really big deal about it. Um, For the record, just in case Peter were to get a big head about this whole thing, uh, it's just five verses later, Jesus calls him Satan, okay? Five verses later, verse 23, he calls Peter Satan. And so uh, chill out, Peter, right? You're not as awesome as you think you are, uh, Jesus makes it abundantly clear here who is responsible for all of this. And note what he says. Does he say, does he say, you guys, disciples, you guys will build the church? No. No, he says, I will build my church. It's amazing how often um, the church today seems to get that backwards, right? I've seen a lot of churches today that sort of allow Jesus to to be uh, maybe an advisor. (laughs) They allow Jesus to maybe be a, a consultant when in reality they're just sort of pushing forward their own plans and their own agendas for their own churches, ignoring the fact all along that Jesus was like, hey, hey guys, yeah, hey. 
This is actually my church. This is, this is my bride. I, I got this. And meanwhile, we're like, yeah, okay, Jesus. But have you seen, have you seen how brilliantly we can articulate our philosophy of ministry? Because, you know, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> meanwhile, Jesus is just rolling his eyes. Jesus establishes his church. And then Jesus promises to sustain it promises to sustain it. Now in the ESV, um, this text says uh, the, the following, it says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, right? But if you consult the, the Greek translation, you find that the actual word being used here for hell is the word Hades, okay? Hades. Now I, I'd submit to you that this is significant because Jesus is doing something brilliant here. He's doing something brilliant in that he is employing the use of a double entendre, right? Or rather an intentional double meaning. He's actually saying two things by saying one thing. Okay, so firstly, the phrase gates of Hades, something that would be lost on us, that was a very, very well-known, very, very commonly used Jewish idiom in this day. And it simply meant the powers of death, okay? The powers of, so Jesus is saying, I will build my church, the powers of death will not prevail against it. Said differently, he's saying, guys, I'm up to something. I'm up to something, and death doesn't win. This, of course, would be proven true by Jesus' own resurrection. And we've learned throughout history, and because of Jesus' promise, that not only can death never stop the Messiah, Additionally, death can never stop his messengers. Amen? Bring it on, right? Persecution, oppression, martyrdom. Jesus will sustain his church. Jesus is taking ground, and nothing's going to stop him. And so that was Jesus' first meaning in this promise, right? The powers of death will not prevail. But his second meaning here. His second meaning is a bit more nuanced, okay? And if I'm honest, I, I think that this is the meaning that I find to be even a little more brilliant. So I want to take you back for a moment, back to that cliff face and that grotto cave, all right? Where this evil was practiced, where injustice was celebrated, where false gods were worshipped, where life was stolen. You see, there was a nickname given to that cave. That hole in the side of that cliff all of the people of this day knew it. It was infamous. And they all referred to it by the same name. Anyone have any guesses? It was known as the Gates of Hades. The Gates of Hades. You see, I believe this was very intentional wording on Jesus' part. In some ways, I can even imagine him pointing to that hole in that rock as he makes this statement. The gates of Hades will not prevail. Meaning what? What's he saying here? He's saying that meaning our hope, right? Our purpose and the mission of this church. It's not merely to help the world escape the consequences of death and hell for eternity. Though it certainly is that, there's also more to it. 
It's also to help rid the world of the hell that's already here. Corruption and injustice, the exploitation of the vulnerable and the weak, right? The perverse and the abuse, right? It will all be dealt with. That evil will not prevail. All of a sudden, we see the brilliance of Jesus having this particular conversation in this particular place. The geography matters. It matters. I think it's no accident that this is where Jesus chose to establish his church. I want you to notice it doesn't happen in the sweet comforts of Galilee, right? And it doesn't happen within the sheltered city walls of Jerusalem, right? It doesn't happen in the temple courtyard. It happens here. In the shadows of darkness, it happens at the gates of Hades. It happens in the midst of brokenness and evil and the ugly. Jesus brings very good, very hopeful news to the place that needs it most. And isn't it fascinating? Isn't it fascinating that he spends the years of his ministry in and around this darkness? Okay? I mentioned earlier that, that this spring, this cave uh, in Caesarea Philippi is the headwaters for the Jordan River, right? The Jordan River, like where Jesus was baptized, right? Like, this same river, it feeds the Galilee, where he did his ministry, where he healed the sick and where he taught the masses, where he fed the hungry, right? Jesus literally walked on these waters. Friends, talk about redemption. The same waters used to drown the innocent, Jesus would use to save the guilty. I love that. I love that. Right? It reeks of hope. And restoration, it smells, it smells like the gospel. Something broken, something twisted, something evil being redeemed and repurposed and restored. Just like us. Amen. Friends, I have to tell you, this is one of the things that I love and appreciate most about Red Sea Church. You see, you guys, you guys aren't hiding out in, in the sheltered cleanliness of the suburbs, right? Like you are shining the light of the gospel in the midst of some pretty serious darkness and brokenness, and I think it's beautiful. I can't help but imagine um, that, that if Jesus were having this very same conversation today and were he having this conversation in Portland, I can't help but imagine that, that he would be pointing his finger up at the St. John's Bridge, right? Sitting there in Cathedral Park, where, for the record, lives are still regularly lost in the waters, 
where violence still happens on a regular basis. And you know what he'd be saying? He'd be saying, friends, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And friends, you will be my instruments. And you will carry this mission with me. Will you join me? Let's take this ground. Let's take this ground. I mentioned earlier that uh, this passage is one of my favorites. And it's one of my favorites, not just because it showcases Jesus's brilliance, but also because this passage has been a, a, a rock, a foundation for me personally. And I do not have time to share my whole story with you this morning, but I do wanna share sort of a testimony of, of my last few years uh, of life in ministry. You see, God first called me into the ministry when I was studying civil engineering at Oregon State. And uh, I then wound up spending the next three and a half years living overseas as a foreign missionary. And it was during that time as a foreign missionary that God grew in, in our hearts, me and my wife, in our hearts, a passion for the ministry of the local church. And so in 2007, we moved back to the Pacific Northwest with a passion for church planting, and for local church ministry. And over the next several years, God began clarifying and preparing us for the particular work that he was calling us to. And so during that time of sort of formation, in addition to pumping out a whole horde of children, um, we also, went, I went through uh, Convergence. That's actually where I met Josh and Royce. I went through the program with them. And then in 2014, we were sent out as church planters to start a new ministry in Albany, Oregon. And what followed was the single most difficult year of our lives. And uh, as I think back over that, that first year, really just that first season, the first several months of, of church planting, there's sort of three big events that, that we encountered that could have ruined us. It could have ruined us and it could have killed the church, right? Firstly, um, is the story of our official launch Sunday. Now, a, a launch Sunday in, in the church plant world is like the day that you've been praying for and planning for for years, right? And for us, when that day came, instead of it being a worship service, like we had anticipated, it ended up being a funeral service for my best friend, who also happens to be one of our three founding elders in our church plant. And it was devastating. It was devastating. And um, so that weekend, I preached my first ever funeral for a 28-year-old husband and father of two whose body had been utterly destroyed by cancer. And it wrecked me. It wrecked me. And I felt like death was winning. But as it turns out, Jesus was building his church. You know, of the 500 or so people that attended Sam's funeral, the vast majority of them didn't know Jesus. And, and when Sam asked me the week before he died in the hospice center, when he asked me to preach at his funeral, I asked him, what do you want me to say, man? What do you want me to do? 
And Sam said, Nathan, uh, there's going to be a lot of people there that don't know Jesus. I just want you to throw the gospel as hard as you can. So I did. And then we launched the church the next week. And dozens, dozens of those who had attended the funeral showed up. Hungry to meet this Jesus that had changed Sam's life. You see, I thought that Hades was winning. As it turns out, Jesus was building his church. That was number one. <laughs> Second big thing that hit us, uh, you know, we had spent a whole year looking for any place in the city that we could meet as a church. We spent a year searching. We finally found the one place that we could do it, and it was an old abandoned grocery store that was about as gross as you can possibly imagine. Okay, there were literally animals nesting inside of this building. And over several months, we probably spent what I would guess to be thousands of, of volunteer labor hours cleaning that space up and making it our own. And it was super quirky, okay? But it worked, right? Church in a grocery store. And uh, more importantly than it working, it was also literally our only option of a place to meet. So, so we made it work. And, and we held our first worship service in there. Okay, um, and over the course of the next couple of months, it felt like home. It felt like home. And then one morning, I got a call from the landlord who told me that a local business had seen all of the work that we had done and had offered him 10 times what we could afford in rent. And so he gave us one week's notice and an eviction letter, <laughs> and we became homeless. And in addition to becoming homeless, it meant that we had lost all of that energy, all of that investment. And to make matters even worse, this was two weeks before our first ever Easter service. Okay, two weeks. Tell you what, in that moment, it felt to me like hell was winning. It turns out Jesus was up to something. He was building his church. The next day, I got a phone call from the principal of the local high school saying, would you please come meet on our campus? And uh, ecstatic that God was providing for us, we moved into the, the high school just in time for Palm Sunday, okay? And, and, and we began desperately gearing up for Easter the next week. Then uh, Wednesday morning, this is the Wednesday before Easter, an arsonist, lit fire to the building that we were meeting in and burned it to the ground with literally everything we owned inside it. A complete and total loss of everything. When I say everything, I mean everything, like, like our instruments and our sound system, our, our, our laptop that we had purchased, the video projectors, our signs, kids' curriculum, kids' ministry materials, hospitality supplies, our chairs, everything. We lost it all four days before Easter. And at that point, I was convinced that hell was winning. Like either that or else God was cursing us. It was clearly one of, of these two things. Like, and I'm thinking, maybe I heard wrong. Maybe we were never supposed to plant this stupid church to begin with, right? But it turns out Jesus was building his church. 
And while, if I'm honest with you, while I wanted to throw in the towel, our elders forced me to go ahead with the plan. And so we went ahead and we held an Easter service just a couple of hundred feet away from that still smoldering pile of burnt rubble that was our stuff. And that morning, Easter morning, unbeknownst to us, uh, K2 News from Portland, the news agency in Portland, they showed up Easter morning. They wound up videotaping and then broadcasting our Easter service on the news that night. And all of a sudden, the gospel was going forth over the airwaves to a viewership of hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> now hundreds of thousands of people are hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus' life and his death and his victorious resurrection. Hundreds of thousands of people are watching as people are following Jesus in, in baptism and they're watching as we worship. And over the subsequent weeks, Dozens of people and dozens of new families began showing up. You see, God gave us a platform and he gave us a story that we could have never fabricated. We could have never marketed on our own, right? And he did it through a devastating fire. It felt like death. It turns out Jesus was building his church. That was our first four months as a church plant, by the way, <laughs> just four months. And it was brutal, but it was beautiful. And you see over the next couple of years, Jesus continued to faithfully lead and grow us. If you flash forward a couple years on our three year anniversary, we had grown as a church from what had started as a dozen people in my living room to, to well over 300 people on a typical Sunday morning, most of whom were either brand new believers or they were people who hadn't been a part of a church community in decades, or they were people showing up who were still non-believers. In fact, if I were to take an, an educated guess, I would guess that on a typical Sunday morning, something like probably one quarter to one third of the people attending were not Christians. But they were showing up and they were asking questions and they were desiring truth and they were experiencing the love of Jesus's people and his community. And man, over those years, we celebrated we got to watch dozens of people come to saving faith in Jesus. Dozens of people follow Jesus in baptism. And it was wild. Like it was the most wild, difficult, and yet fruitful and beautiful years in ministry I've ever experienced. And time and again, we felt like the enemy was winning. And time and again, Jesus reminded us of his promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jumping forward to today, for the last two years, um, I've been serving as a worship pastor here in Bend, Oregon. And, and for my family, this has been a much needed season of rest and recuperation but you see, over these last two years, we have been in constant prayer 
and constantly seeking God's will for where it is that he's calling us next. Where are we going next, God, to serve and to lead in your church? Then a few months ago, God began a new conversation uh, with Josh Duncan in particular, and then with the rest of your elder team at Red Sea. And over the last couple months, we've had the opportunity to talk and to dream about, about the context of St. John's and North Portland. And we began to recognize as we had these conversations how some of my giftings and passions seemed to be a really good fit for some of the particular needs of Red Sea Church in this moment. And the more that we talked and the more that we prayed, the more that we felt convinced that God was speaking and that he was speaking clearly. And that, that our coming and being a part of the future of Red Sea was a part of Jesus' plan to continue to build his church in North Portland. I want you to know that it is, it is our hearts. And I say our hearts, I mean me and my, my wife, my family. It is our heart's passion to see those who don't yet know Jesus come to saving faith in him. Especially in the midst of contexts like Caesarea Philippi, like St. John's, where life and faith on a daily basis can be a struggle, places where it doesn't always feel like Jesus is winning. That is what our hearts long for. And so I want you to hear that we are hopeful. We are hopeful for the future because we believe that Jesus is faithful to do what he has promised. And it would be an honor. It would be our honor and our delight to get to engage in that mission with all of you. Okay, I'm done talking about me now. I want to get back to the actual hero of this story, and that is Jesus. And so I'm going to, I'm going to end with this. Uh, I want us to return to the text just for a moment, right? And in particular, we can look again at verses 13 and 15, uh, in which Jesus, the hero of this story, the sustainer of the church, he asks two questions, doesn't he? Right? Firstly, Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Now, I I want you to recognize that there is an assumption here. There is an assumption. Jesus assumes that the disciples are connected enough to the culture around them, that they are connected enough to the non-disciples, to the watching world, connected enough to the outsiders to know what it is they think about Jesus. Jesus assumes this of them. Can I ask you a quick question? Who does St. John's say that Jesus is? Who does St. John's believe Jesus to be? And you might be thinking, how do I answer that question? There's a ton of people here. Okay, let me narrow that in a little bit. Who do your immediate neighbors say that Jesus is? And when I say neighbors, I mean literal neighbors, like just the, the people literally living on either side of you or maybe across, across the street. Who do they say that Jesus is? Do you know? 
Let me ask another question. When's the last time that you had a spiritual conversation with somebody outside of your immediate faith community? Jesus assumes his disciples are doing this. He assumes that they know. I'm just going to let you sit with that and either be encouraged or convicted, but I'll let you wrestle. Firstly, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? Secondly, and maybe we could argue even more importantly, Jesus asks the question, and who do you say that I am? You see, all of a sudden, he makes this very personal, doesn't he? And I would suggest, I would suggest that this is perhaps the most important question anyone will ever answer. Who do you say that I am? Because you see in the end, hear this, it's not our parents' faith that saves us, right? You're not a Christian because your grandma was a deaconess in the church and because you attended Sunday school when you were a kid, right? Like nobody rides the coattails of their ancestors into heaven. And so unless, unless we can answer this question, who do you say that I am? Unless we can answer this with, with, with a clear and resounding personal faith, Jesus would then say, you don't know me. This is a vitally important question. And it's a question that I would love to invite each one of us to answer today. And for some of us, maybe it's the first time we've ever answered the question. And for others of us, maybe you've answered this question a thousand times before, right? But the scriptures tell us in the book of Romans that those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? Which is what Peter has done here, by the way. You are the Christ, right? the Son of the living God, the Messiah, our Savior and King. Those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And those who believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Again, those who believe Jesus' promise here that Hades, that the powers of death will not prevail. They will be saved. So friends, I pray that you would join me in that great confession and this great belief today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. But I'd also like to let you know that, that this is the time when, you know, as, a, as an act of declaring these things, we get to do this every week symbolically as we receive communion together. And as we break the bread we remember Christ's body, which was broken for us. And as, as, we, as we dip it in the cup, we remember Jesus' blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we feast, this feast of grace, remembering you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the good news of the gospel, my friends. Good news for us. Good news for St. John's. Good news for the world. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, the incredible and beautiful news of your great gospel is not lost on us this morning. 
And so we join with the disciples and we join with believers throughout the ages and history in declaring as Peter did once that you, Jesus, are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you are the one who builds your church. You are the one who pushes the mission forward, who sustains it at every corner, who sustains us at every corner. You are the God that we need, the lover of our souls. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you saw us in our deep need and in our dependence and that you saw fit to save us by sending your son. And Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth and you lived the perfect life that we are supposed to live, but that every single one of us have failed to live. And then not only that, you died the death of a sinner that we deserve to die, forsaken by the Father, as we deserve to be forsaken so that we could be adopted, so that we could be brought in and accepted and loved, so that though we were enemies, we could become children of God. I'm thankful, God, that because of your power, death didn't have the last word. Jesus, as you sprang forth from the ground in victory, you established the resurrection life that we will participate in one day as well, for which we are eternally thankful. So we confess you this morning as Lord and Savior. We thank you for your goodness to us, and we turn our hearts to you now in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.